Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. Yes, it is Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you for episode number 269. Hey, just one guest on the podcast this week, but boy, he's one of the most interesting people in the entertainment business. A lot of hyphens. Singer, writer, actor, speaker, author, comedian, activist. We're talking about Henry Rollins, who first burst on the scene both literally and figuratively as the front man of the band Black Flag back in the early 1980s. Went on to start his own record label and publishing company, 213.61. Released spoken word albums, formed the Rollins Band, which also toured for many, many years as well. Uh, He's been an actor, appearing on Sons of Anarchy, working with Al Pacino back in the day. He's had his own radio show and podcast. And he's uh, getting ready to hit the road again for more of his Good to See You tour, which will bring him to New England. For several shows, we had a fascinating conversation with Henry Rollins here on Downtown. Appreciate you making some time for us today. Oh, no problem at all. Uh, you'll be coming here to Maine uh, and New England for shows uh, on the Good to See You Tour coming up in, in September. How are you finding post-pandemic travel? Uh, really good. I mean, um, I spend as much time as possible on the road doing shows. And so when the pandemic hit and one tour after another would be canceled in a single email, like three months of touring in one email, it just goes away. And you have to call the road manager and inform him he doesn't have a job. And the, the chain of sadness just keeps uh, you know going out further and further as more people are called to be dismissed. And so there's a solid year there where I was told by the agent, we'll try again next year, not next month, next year, mm. where I just thought, I, I have to reinvent myself at age 60. Well, you know, that's the old dog new trick thing, which might not work out so well. So when touring finally came back, I'd spent almost a year wondering if it would come back at all. So to, to answer your question, when we were, I was finally turned loose back into the world in March of last year, I was, I think I felt like I'd won the lottery because yeah, it was just so great to be back with an audience because I, I understood what I had been missing immediately. I mean, it didn't I didn't have to lose it to make me miss it. I missed tour as soon as they end. And so do you know when you're on stage, obviously with a band, you can sense the reaction right away. Do you know in these spoken word performances when the audience is with you, when you've got them? Yeah, um, quite often. I will, you know, the, the, the show starts to even out a few a few shows in, the actual set. You know, you have the stories. It's basically like a set for music. You, you go out with a bunch of, uh, you know, songs, and I go out with a bunch of stories. And I tell them, and you start to see quickly what lands, what doesn't. Even if it's down to a single line, for some reason, something you say every single night, bam, you get a reaction. And so you can start using those as like sonar pings to see if there's anything out there. And you'll say something in from Buffalo to Seattle and everyone says, you know, hooray or something. And then you try that in Belgium 
and everyone just sits politely. You're like, <laughs> okay. And it, so it, it's not necessarily like it's not landing. It's just uh, audience appreciation is different in different places. And so I keep a few people in my eye line and I use them as monitors because there's some people who are just reactive. Now, some people, quite often there's a, a couple there. The guy is a big fan of mine. The girlfriend went because the guy bought two tickets and she can't stand it. And so you'll see her watch, just watching her phone for the entire evening. <laughs> I'll watch her because if I can get her to raise up from the phone and tune in, I must be doing something good. So uh, rather than worry so much about how the crowd is digging it, and, and I do worry, I have to trust the material. And that comes from working very hard on it, uh, not to reinvent the truth of it, but just in a, a great attempt to, to bring high quality stuff to the stage. And before COVID, I would try to earn your attention, you the audience member, by traveling all over the world to get stories that came at great expense, you know, financial to fly to these places. And, you know, the personal expenses that go trudge through these forests and railroad tracks and souks and bazaars and villages and slums uh, to bring back stories handpicked from countries all over the world. And so this, this tour I've been on is the first tour where I don't have a global perspective, where I'm not pulling a story from North Korea or Iran or Syria or Lebanon, these places I used to frequent. And so uh, luckily there was enough crazy things that happened stateside <laughs> to me uh, to where I can fill up a, a show and have it uh, hopefully captivating. We're talking with Henry Rollins on downtown. Well, you have that global perspective, though, from your, your many years of travel. Where are we headed in America? Uh, right now, I think America is, as it always is to a certain degree, uh, in transition. Because a lot of change, just, this is just my opinion, doesn't mean anything. Uh, but I, I think a lot of change in the United States isn't necessarily by law, legislation, or even a president or a movement. It's generational, where, you know, people, you know, old guys like me just drop off, and a younger generation comes to the fore with just different ideas about things, like war and where money should go, and the use, the role of technology, or education, or justice. And things in the 60s are probably not the same as they are now. And so where are we going right now? I think you're seeing the final days of a very well-moneyed and very opinionated uh, group of people. Uh, you know, old guys like me and Dick Cheney, you know, like who really had a lot of influence. I think at some point uh, we just stopped breathing and our vacancy promotes something else. And I think that's what's happening right now where you see some political parties, if they can't win, they just change voter registration or they gerrymander or they try to do something because legitimately they're losing their grip on power. They know it. Their demographic is shifting. They know it. And so um, it's like the last few seconds of an insect dying. The, kicks, uh, the legs kick violently <laughs> and then it's over. And I think that's where the United States is right now, uh, where you see this kind of weird tribalism like, I voted for this guy, so I can't talk to you. Well, really? Well, we're in the same supermarket. Like, why can't we get along? And I am I come from more of that idea of I, I really want to get along with everybody. 
and I will try rather than tribalize. What, what's fueling this anger, especially from, from the right? Uh, I would say what uh, is fueling a lot of people in this country is economic uncertainty. And I, I really don't like pointing fingers like, oh, you're stupid. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I'm no genius. And uh, what person is all that stupid anyway? They're smart enough to have credit debt. I mean, like we're all kind of <laughs> stuck in this together. So I think economic uncertainty, uh, I think d- diminishing of natural resources, whether you want to believe that's happening or not, is affecting you. It, it's, and it's hitting you at the grocery store. Uh, there's nothing like a global pandemic, we find out, to really screw up economic systems all over the world, which eventually impact the United States. And so I think a lot of people who have like real, real world worry, like multiple kids, a mortgage, car payments, they're looking at their economic future, and it doesn't necessarily look bright. And that, I think, freaks people out. It doesn't necessarily make them more generous or more concerned for their fellow person, it makes them demonize the homeless or that which is different, trans, LBGTQ, women with an opinion, non-white people. And uh, I think that's what a lot of Americans are feeling. And I I have nothing but sympathy in that I I, I understand adult fear because it's different than like a 16 year old, like, will this girl go out with me? That's fluff compared to I can't I'm going upside down on the damn house and I've got two kids that's where you don't sleep anymore and I just think uh you put people in that situation don't expect them to be all kumbaya all the time is this fear of the LGBTQ plus community is it real or is that just a way for those who who have a platform to feed the base with some more anger I don't think it's fear at all. I think they just hate these people's guts because <laughs> they, they just think it's uh, invented. Like, you don't, you're a girl. You don't really want to be a boy. There's a ladies' room. Go walk in it and take care of yourself. Uh, they, they might not want to acknowledge the incredible complexity of homo sapiens. Like, we are an incredibly complex species. And why run away from that? Like, oh, I, I'm a simple guy. And you're not that simple. You're like, it, the fact that you can have conflicting ideas, like we're a very complex creature. And now we just understand more. As far as like LGBTQ, there's been those kind of people, those people, there's been LGBTQ folks forever. There's been people trapped in a body they're not happy in forever since human history first started. And now that you can understand that and something can be done, why would you want to keep someone from happiness? I wouldn't want to keep you from yours, and I don't care who you vote for. Uh, So I don't think it's fear. I think it's just outright hatred due to all kinds of contributing factors, you know, ignorance or just plain, I don't like you because you're different or like you you talk like a girl, like what's your problem? And and so uh, that comes from, uh, all kinds of things, from bad parenting to uh, no one showed you this book. And, you know, you can you can fix a lot of these problems uh, at, in the classroom. And maybe people shouldn't be having so many kids if you can't, uh, if you don't want to wrestle with the idea that you're going to be raising a highly complex, paranoid, schizophrenic creature, which would be an, a human. Um, don't have five of them. How about that? Uh, is it, is it, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare have a kid. Uh, I just because I understand how complex we are. I'd rather just root for them from the sidelines. 
Is it tougher to be a young man now than it was when our generation was growing up? I think there's more to know because uh, I, I think that, you know, you're not 28 anymore. Neither am I. So we're probably within 10 years of the same age. I think to a certain degree, you and I were handed quite a bill of goods uh, at some <laughs> points. Like, here's what you're a man. Here's what you need to do. Really? I don't necessarily hold with all or any of that stuff at all at this point. And so I think maybe young men now are hearing what women are saying, what girls are saying, what other men are saying. And they're realizing maybe this eat your Wheaties and show up on you know Friday for football practice isn't necessarily the only option. And so I think young men now may not have it as easy because they realize there's far more to be understood. Where when I was young, I was told, you're a guy, you can you know, urinate anywhere you want because you do it <laughs> standing up. And I, I just think I meet a lot of young people and I, I find the, the males to be far more considerate and more open-eyed than I was when I was young or when I was their age. Now, I grew up with a, a single mom, or, and uh, I know your dad left when you were pretty young. Was it was it difficult for you to figure out what manhood was about? Did you because you had to look other places for role models? Absolutely, um, my dad was around. He just, but neither of my parents wanted to be parents. You know, I, I I'm a I'm an occurrence of vodka, and, and so they were both hard driving careerists, like super smart, really hardworking wanting to get to the top and suddenly they're sidelined with a kid and they got married for appearances sake and as soon as I arrived they were they divorced and I've never seen a photo of the two of them or the three of us I, I don't know if they that they exist and at this point who cares but um I would I, and I remember as an old guy now I remember looking for male role models even where there, there was a kid in my neighborhood I would go over to their apartment and ask the kid's father to go to the park with me and throw the football. And the guy, I could, I, I see it now as an older guy. I can, because I can remember the expression on the guy's face. Like he looks at his wife, like uh, I'm going to go out with Henry for like 20 minutes. I'll be back. And the wife goes, oh, like the kid doesn't have a dad or a male presence, so he's coming over and he's having like dad light, you know. Like, and I would, <laughs> the guy would just like, well, Henry here, like throw the ball and like, look, I got to get back to my family and. It, it was good seeing you, Henry. And I would do that with teachers. You know, I had a lot of male teachers at the uh, prep school I went to. And I was just looking for a guy to tell me, like, here's how women work. Here, here's how to conduct yourself. Because my dad, his ideas on how to treat women are uh, literally, to me, unrepeatable. Like, the misogyny is <laughs> toxic with this guy. I think he just hated and feared women. And so... Uh, as far as a role model or how to conduct myself, it came in fits and starts and was probably just really bad. You know, it's I probably could have gone through a less a lot less Sturm und Drang had I had a more steady rolling male in my life going, whoa, 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 sit down, man. Like, well, we're going to talk this through because that's wrong. And luckily, I never absorbed any of my father's misogyny. But I, I will say, and this is probably for like a lot of young people, my, my early years were, were quite fraught with confusion. You know, I, I really didn't know what, what end was going, go where, really. <laughs>
Uh, aging is a pretty curious thing. I just turned 65 a couple of weeks ago. I know you find great humor in this process of getting older. I, I have to. Like, what what choice do I have? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's either it's either that or cry. And so um, I'm 62 and a half, basically. And I've grown up very publicly in that you can find photos of me for every year since like <laughs> 1980. And, you know, tons in these days with the cell phone, like photo upon photo. So people show me photos of myself all the time. Hey, dude, I met you in 1989. I see all that black hair. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so my past is thrown in my face all the time. And you see the aging process. Also, you look at people. I look at, you know, like President Obama. Like, look at all that gray hair. Like the, the leader of the United States that takes a toll on a person. And I don't necessarily compare myself, but I realize everyone goes through it. And with the pandemic, there's people I grew up with, like in Washington, D.C., who I used to see at least tw twice a year. And with the pandemic, you know, it took me almost three years to see my friend Ian Mackay. And we, we've been best friends for over 50 years. It's crazy. Um, I didn't see Ian for a couple of years. And then we were finally in the same room kind of looking at each other like these two <laughs> ancient men, like, oh, my God. <laughs> and so for me, uh, I think it's be, it's a process of like eh, learning what you want and what you don't want, what you can live without and then living without it and uh, not showing up for that, which you don't want to show up for. And um, learning some patience and accepting change. Like, I, I can't do that anymore. Like, OK, the stairs uh hurt <laughs> and my suitcase is heavier and so um i think i have no choice but to accept it and make fun of it have you been able to uh, to shed some of the things that that maybe brought you anger and frustration in the past or or as you look around do you see more reasons to be concerned upset with the world uh my my anger is still present and i think it's a good thing um but what you would probably infuriate me 10 years ago, I now just chalk up to bad parenting. Like if you showed me uh, the previous president 20 years ago, I just would have went like, ah, I would have been so angry. Now I look at this guy and like, well, you, you weren't right for the job. You didn't ever want the job. <laughs> and your parents really did a number on you. And sadly, you did a number on your kids. And I feel really bad for the kids of the kids of that guy. Because I hope they don't get the severe mental traumatizing uh, that has seemingly been handed down generationally from, you know, the father to the son to the son to the son. And so uh, I try to look at things with a wider scope and not be so vindictive all the time. And so I'm not mad at the homeless. I never was. I'm mad at homelessness. Mm. Uh, I, I'm ang my, my anger. I'm, I'm, ang I'm angry at, at, at famine. I'm angry at, at intolerance, not the intolerant. Because like me being mad at the guy I disagree with, neither party goes anywhere. <clears throat> and being a, a, a grown up, I realize I'm not going to convince you of anything. And you're not going to convince me of anything. Like, like if you think that global warming, global climate change is not a thing. There's nothing I can show you that will make you go, oh, wow, okay. Because you're just too old for you to relinquish intellectual territory and give me a yard 
to get to your goal line. You, you, it, we just don't do that anymore. So there's some people uh, who just will not be swayed, like me. Uh, you can't, I think what I think, and I'm in, in some ways very close-minded on things, in that you're not going to turn me into a homophobe. I just, you, can't, you can't do it. And so uh, as an older guy, I look at other people and issues with a lot more patience and a much wider lens. Like what brought you to say that thing? And Hubert Selby, the great writer, author of Last Exit to Brooklyn, a, a, a male role model for me, actually. And he understood that and he really embraced it. He was like a, a, a quite a cool alt dad for me. He used to say to me over and over again, maybe being instructive, that a lot of anger comes from fear. And I, I didn't quite understand that when he told me that as a 26-year-old. And I understand it. I I started to understand that because I would see it in myself, which is perhaps why he said it to me. Um, and so I've been able to, that's one of the things I've been able to shed. Uh, or as the great Iggy Pop once said, you really want to make yourself an enemy of insecurity as best you can. Talking with Henry Rollins on Downtown and more of that conversation coming up after this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Band right there in a song called Illumination. More of our conversation with Henry Rollins here on Downtown. Your public persona, you've often said uh, your public work has been about sticking it to the man. Who is the man these days? Uh, the, the man is, to, is the one who tells you that uh, a guy can't dress like a woman and, and uh, you know, uh, have fun in a bar and make people laugh and feel a sense of community. Uh, that's the man. Uh, yeah, and, and like it's oppressive forces. It's not a single human being. I can't mm. like say ah. Uh, that would be two. easy. <laughs> well, well, it would just be like it's because it's not like one person. It, right. It's it's an idea. And so the man, I just love that term. Like, why do you live to stick it to the man, man? It's, it's just <laughs> too funny to resist. Um, but the the idea of the man is just those those people who tell you. That, oh, that person is bad. Like, really? What do you know? You've never been to that guy's neighborhood. You have no idea the nine to five of that person. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that to me is the man. And it, it, I'm not looking to pick up hammer and tongs or uh, uh, burn anyone's house to the ground. So a, a lot of this is just intellectual uh, just poking. It's not like I'm going to go uh, burn something to the ground. How important are your workouts, Henry, uh, for both uh, being able to do the shows you do, but for your, your mental health as well? 
Um, for me, I don't have a religion, really. I don't believe in some higher power. I believe in rock and roll. Um, the gym is such a big deal for me. And one of the best parts of where I live is I am four minutes, two traffic lights away from my uh, Planet Fitness, my local Planet Fitness, which is seven days a week, 24-7. Mm. And I go up to two times in 24 hours. And so maybe how someone goes to an AA meeting, sometimes they go twice a day when they're really feeling on the edge. I go to the gym up to twice a day. And, you know, I have house rules. If I'm jet lagging and I'm, I'm up bright and early at 2.30 in the morning, go to the treadmill. And I was in there last uh, afternoon. I'll be in there in a few hours. I do six days a week. And I try to eat about one and a half, one meal a day. And so the workout, it's not like I'm trying to put on muscle with this sagging carcass. Um, <laughs> it's more about mental toughness. And I'm about almost 200 shows into this tour. And it takes a lot of intellectual oomph to get the show over the wall every night. And this time next week, I'll be almost to England. Um, I just came back from Australia about a week and a half ago. And I'll be in England next week for a few shows. And then I've got almost 60 shows starting. That brings me to Maine uh, later this year. And so the tour will top out at like 250 some shows. And one of the ways I get through that is, A, I love what I do, but it's good, really targeted nutrition and a very vigorous workout schedule, even on tour. What's your ideal writing environment? Uh, in places, not at home. Uh, I, I, a moving tour bus, an airport, an airplane, a hotel, a yurt, a tent, um, a coffee place on a night off. Uh, with great adverse weather uh, happening outside the window. Anything but my desk in my office in my house, which to me, I, I don't mind being off the road now and then because that's where my records are. But it's, for me, life on pause. I'm not trying hard enough. So it's hard for me to get writing going uh, when I'm off the road. So mainly, when I'm off the road, I do a lot of editing. So I do the writing on the road. Mm and the editing off the road. But even on the road, I, I have a full work day. I, I wake up in the morning, stagger to a gym, come back, get into the venue, and start my office work. I have like my little road case, I set up my mini office, because I'm always writing two books and editing one. And so it's like juggling. And so um, that I've been working on a couple of books uh, on this current tour, but I'd much rather be out in the world, watching the world and reacting to it and having that inform the writing rather than being off and away from the world. Well, and that brings up a, a question I wanted to ask early on, and I'm going to skip by it here. What, what is it about travel that opens the mind? I think encountering other cultures, if you travel in that way. If, if an American goes to Holland, you're going to walk 10 paces and, and like bump your head into a Starbucks. It's not necessarily <laughs> that different. And I'm not putting Holland down, quite the opposite. I'm just saying when, when a Westerner travels in the West, you might get exposed to some beautiful architecture and some maybe the politeness of Europe and the progressiveness of some European countries. But when you go to India or when you go to the center of the African continent or into deep Southeast Asia or Central Asia or the Middle East, 
you you run into really different cultures where they just don't do things like you do necessarily. Food and drink, yes, of course. But um, even social, just distancing, like human polite distancing, like in India, people get inches from your face where you back away, they come with you. You're like, whoa, like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, and it's just proximity is a different thing in different places. Um, the ideas of generosity, of this conduct on the streets, things are different. And so I sought in the, in the 1990s to save my money and start traveling to countries where I didn't have a stage waiting for me in an effort to under, understand the world outside of the West. Because like touring gets me to Europe solidly all the time. Um, touring gets me to Australia, New Zealand, occasionally Japan, uh, Brazil now and then, but it doesn't get me to Vietnam or to Kenya or to Egypt or you know, North Korea, these places I've been. And so I started going to these countries and just walking around with a backpack and a camera, talking to people like, okay, man, how do you get through your day? Can I walk with you? And um, 80 countries later, 90 countries later, um, everyone said shukran and gave me a cup of tea. Uh, I've almost been killed three times, but that was all in the United States of America. Um, and so, as Mark Twain once said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it best, he said, travel is like the last coffin nail in the coffin of bigotry. Mm. And I don't think I was ever a bigot. I, I, I don't think so. But as, if there's any cobwebs of bigotry in my thinking, traveling on that level, just to experience another culture, bl just blows those cobwebs away completely. And I found myself really, this sounds really, a bit much but like kind of falling in love with homo sapiens because you you see like this amazing cultures that are different than your own and how people are so welcoming in places you've been told by condoleezza rice not to go to and it made me i think it probably has informed the last 20 or 30 years of my life as far as my outlook where my my outlook as an American has been informed by international travel to rainforest deserts, a lot of slums and souks and bazaars, and, and traveling through countries where they have Sharia law, like like Saudi Arabia, where you're like, wow, this is pretty scorched earth as far as policy, not my rock and roll, but for a week, I'll you know I'll I'll, I'll absorb, and then I'm out. I went from there to Sri Lanka, I think. Um, I think travel has made me a better person. How do you maintain integrity in a business that's uh, not exactly known for it? I don't do a lot of business. You know, I, I'm not shaking <laughs> a lot of hands. I, I live uh, in Henry world. Uh, I, I've written a lot of books. How did I do that? I own the publishing company. I sleep <laughs> with the owner every night. Um, I, I'm, I'm basically my own little camp. I don't have multiple deals with like labels and production companies. Every once in a while, I've done a TV show. So you work with a production company for eight months and then the deal is over and you go do something else. But I wrote the script. You know, I, I, I came up with a lot of the content for what you saw. Uh, and so that's how I do that. I just don't delegate a lot to a lot of people and I'm not looking to be in a huge cast on a on a TV show uh, all the time. 
you know, I, I pick that stuff carefully or, you know, it's not like I've got a big choice in that no one's like knocking my door down for me to be in their big Hollywood production. I'm just careful when I work with others. But for the most part, I do my own thing. Got to ask you a quick music question. What's a great album that not enough people have listened to? Oh, wow. Um, Lodger by David Bowie. It's just uh, David Bowie's one of his most interesting records. Uh, Funhouse by the Stooges, my personal favorite record. Uh, it's not taken over the world like uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper, uh, but I think it should. So those, those, are, uh, those are great. The third uh, Damned album, Machine Gun Etiquette, I think is a perfect rock and roll album. Uh, yeah, there, there's a ton of records. Uh, Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division, I think is it's as good as anything I've ever heard. And I, I just don't understand why Joy Division isn't more lauded mm -hmm. as they are already, yes. Uh, Perverted by Language by The Fall. I, I just think uh, The Fall were an extraordinary band that don't get enough uh, people you know, yelling their bona fides from the rooftops. I understand we, we had a similar inspiration in getting into radio, and it was watching Wolfman Jack and American Graffiti. Did that get you too? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It knocked me out. My mom had like season tickets at a movie theater in, like in Southwest Washington, D.C. I didn't quite understand it, but she paid the money to where you can kind of go to any movie you want from like September to April or whatever it is. And one night she said, all right, we're going to go see this film. I'm like, okay. She had good taste in movies, and what am I going to do? So I went along with her, and it was American Graffiti. And I watched that Wolfman Jack cameo, and he's such a charismatic guy anyway. He was such a, an amazing presenter on the radio and the voice and the, the whole, you know, his just his stature. I, I saw that, and I said, okay, I want to learn more about this music. So my mom got me two 50s compilation LPs, which I still have. And I, I hung on to that idea of this mysterious voice in the night because I was one of those lonely kids who lived in his room, played like I had four records. And then I also had my radio and I would listen to WPGC, which was uh, just an FM station. And they played like what is now known as classic rock. And I'd wake up with Harv Moore in the morning and he would tell you stories. I'd listen to Casey Kasem on Sundays <laughs> and he would tell you stories. And then later on when I got a car, I would drive around and listen to WRC, which was talk radio. And it was political talk radio, and I didn't really understand the politics. I just liked the voices on the radio, these invisible voices who were my friends. And for hours, sometimes hours a day, I listened to a comedian named Phil Hendry, an amazing comedian, H-E-N-D-R-I-E. Uh, -E. I think he's one of the most amazing minds going. And I've been a huge fan of Phil's, I don't know, like 15 years and if you subscribe to his podcast, you can go back to like 20 years ago and listen to the show from then. And I'll line up like four of them. And as I'm editing or, or scanning, doing something where I don't have to pay attention, I'll just put Phil on where I don't need a visual cue. I just like the voice mm -hmm. coming out of a speaker. And to this day, I don't have a TV. I watch things on YouTube and I'll bootleg the news on some uh, station on, on online. <laughs> But um, I'm more of a reader and listen and stare at my speakers kind of guy. And that just comes from how I was raised. But Wolfman Jack is still in my thoughts because, you know, I, I am full, very fully engaged with a radio show. I'm in my little voiceover studio right now where I'll be toiling a few hours from now. Um, and so wanting to be on the radio as a DJ kind of guy 
has been with me since I was like, whenever I saw American Graffiti, like 11 or 12, whenever I was that age. Henry Rollins comes to Maine. Uh, two opportunities to see him on the Good to See You tour, uh, September 20th at the Waldo Theater and the 21st at the Criterion Theater in Bar Harbor. Henry, it's great to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, no, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. That is one interesting guy, Henry Rollins. Uh, I think a great perspective on things. Uh, he is out on tour again, a couple of stops in Maine, but will be uh, throughout New Hampshire and Massachusetts as well in early September on the Good to See You tour. Our thanks to Henry Rollins for visiting with us this week. Thanks to you, of course, as well. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time.